How much do you know about your process memory systems? What are you doing to enhance each of the steps and systems that your memory uses? We have so much power, input, plasticity and ability to make our memories last for longer, enhance them and be available for us when we need them. If we just pay more attention to the stages, elements and environment that they need to be more assertive and have a lot more fidelity. Discover all the tricks and practical tips in episode 71, learning how to use your different types of memory. Welcome everyone to our episode 71 of our season 4. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about learning how to use your different types of memory. So we are going to start uh, reviewing the different kind of uh, structures, the different kind of brain systems that are working together and synchronistically to help you have a much better experience in terms of the memory parts that you are using. So to discuss the topics about this episode, I use as a reference the article from Roldan Valadez from 2012, Neuroanatomy of Episodic and Semantic Memory in Humans, a brief review of neuroimaging studies from the Journal of Neurology India. And we are going to begin with essential definitions so that we can understand what is happening in our memory every time we experience or we perform certain simple actions. Memory is an essential function for the survival of the individuals and their species because the majority of cognitive abilities depend on the successful storage of the information. If we don't store properly the information that we need, then we wouldn't be able to perform certain very simple or trivial functions. Memory has been defined as the process of encoding, storing, consolidating, and retrieving information. It is an emergent process in our brain, resulting from complex interactions between the biochemistry of neurons and their electrical activity in specific anatomical structures. So it is not just the different structures, the different anatomy that you need for your memory to function. You also need the chemical signature, the biochemistry, the signaling mechanisms in order to properly uh, assemble the symphony to help you remember the things that you need. Episodic memory, which we are going to call now EM, stores information regarding events and their context, such as what the event was and where and when it occurred. It is important for clinicians to know the structures involved in this kind of memory because EM allows individuals to remember who they are, their ideas, their thoughts, and feelings. Without the episodic memory, we cannot learn from the past. Can you imagine not learning from your past? That, although many people do that, even though they have the properties to learn from the past. It also gives us our identity and individuality, and it is an elementary part of our consciousness. Episodic memory declines over the lifespan. The elderly take more time to store information, and their recall of recent events is less accurate than that of young adults, and we have seen that repeatedly in our um, family, because when the elderly uh, remember long-term things very um, specifically, but they don't remember recent things, 
this is what is happening. Their episodic memory is going in decline. Alterations to the structures underpinning the episodic memory have been implicated in various disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, epilepsy, schizophrenia, and depression. Studies in cognitive neuroscience have demonstrated that memory is a dynamic property of the brain as a whole, rather than being localized to any single region. So if you are understanding well, this paragraph is a whole system. It's not just separated structures. It is not working independently. It is working together. New advances in magnetic resonant imaging, MRI, have allowed to obtain morphological and functional evidence of the different brain structures involved in memory networks, which form interconnects across the entire brain. Memory is an important part of daily life and allows us effectively to interact with the environment and with other people, of course. Memory allows for the retention of experiences and it minimizes risk and facilitates the optimal use of the current environment. Memory consists of encoding, storage, consolidation, and retrieval of information. Again, these are the different kind of uh, stages of memory to properly store your information. What is encoding? Let's review one of them. Each by um, their properties. Encoding refers to the in initial registration or acquisition of information. It involves the capture of information by sensory systems and its conversion by neuronal coding for use beyond simple perception. The nature of encoding may differ consider considerably depending on different memory demands. So as you can see, encoding needs your perception and it goes even beyond to the acquisition of all the information where, with your senses. So that will depend also from the memory demands. That's why multitasking is so damaging for us because we are not really paying attention. And that's why many times we don't learn the things because doing multiple things is taking up um, RAM memory, let's call it like that, like the computers, the memory that you need to encode this uh, new knowledge and you are not paying attention to the things you are trying to do multiple things and nothing is going to work and you are just going to complicate your life because you will have to repeat the lesson or the book or whatever you are trying to learn or whatever you are trying to do and that's why also very simple task like uh, using a new a new software or a new application is not understood or is not being able to be encoded in your system. What is storage? Storage is the creation of a relatively stable memory trace or record of knowledge in the brain. Such traces require neuronal networks that can engage in neuronal coding, which is the substrate of information storage and is evoked when we remember a specific information. So storage needs your stable memory trace and the record of the knowledge. So if you didn't do, or if you didn't allow the first stage of encoding to properly take up the information, the storage is not going to be reliable. That's why we need to understand all of these stages of our memory so that we can improve and enhance our brain in terms of the learning experiences. 
Consolidation, this is the next stage, refers to slow physical processes which continue after perception that enable temporary changes in activity and synaptic strength to become long-lasting and the later reactivation of neural activity to allow for the induction of long-term synaptic, synaptic changes. So let's analyze this small paragraph. You need all of the synapses and you need these changes so that you can have a reactivation of multiple synapses across your memory and the change that is happening that is happening the physical change that is, that is happening to the neurons while they do the synapses also the release of many of many chemical molecules this occurs both in the region where the representation was initially formed the hippocampus and in additional regions where the representation was initially weaker, neocortical structures, but which received spreading neural activity from the hippocampus. So once you take the encoding, once you retrieve the storage, you need to consolidate the memory. And this stage is also very, very important um and it more mostly allowed in your sleep if you don't have the seven to nine hours of sleep or you are being deprived of, of sleep or you are having a very um, bad night of sleep due to the abuse of food alcohol or screens what is going to happen to your memory you won't have this consolidation stage. And at the next day, the information probably is not going to be um, in your system. Retrieval refers to accessing stored information. This is the next stage. It requires the reactivation of knowledge and it is closely related to encoding. Any successful act of retrieval requires initial encoding and the persistence of information in the nervous system. That's why we have to repeat the things and that's why it is much better for the learning experience to write down things, to make notes, to underline the things, whatever you think it's going to work for you to learn more, do it. Start discovering what allows you. Making images, making drawings of the information or trying to make a diagram, all of those can be very helpful in terms of allowing all of these stages of your memory. Because these processes require the active connection of several brain structures, memory is not dependent on a single anatomic structure to which we can assign responsibility for an isolated memory process. Rather, there are multiple memory systems that shape a widely distributed network of cortical and subcortical brain regions with a specific neural behavior. So it is not just storing your information in one part of your brain, it is not using just one, one part of your brain. It is not also allowing some synapses. It is helping your brain to create the complete melody, the complete synchronistic events in order to properly store the information and in order for the information to work for you in the future. In the last few years, Memory has been described as a network of connection whose function is primarily to facilitate the long-lasting persistence of learned environmental cues. Memory systems are formed by organizing elementary structures, which consist of a neural substrate and its behavioral and cognitive correlates. 
some of these structures are engaged in other memory systems and they have emerged at, at different stages of evolution and at different stages in the development of organisms. What are the classification of memory systems? And as you paid attention in the last paragraph, the evolution and the, adva the advancement of all uh, life and technology and everything that has now become our current reality has also allowed us to change our memory systems. If you are more intuitive and more responsible of your learning process, you have learned that certain things of the modern life are not helping you to create the proper learning experiences. And then you are going to be uh, being more careful of the time that you spend in certain activities or um, being more mindful in terms of turning off many of the notification systems that now our digital devices have. That's why they are also trying to help us to create these new strategies and, the, and these new application systems that allow you to have certain periods of time to really pay attention, to really focus on what you are doing and turning off all the notifications possible from your phones because they are learning also that we are damaging our brain and our memory. So now let's go to the second stage of this learning lesson. Classifications of memory systems. What, are, what is this? We are going to classify now all of these systems in order to properly or to easily understand them. Memory has been classified into many subtypes depending on its persistence, the contents of its stored material, and the presence or not of consciousness during learning and memory. Pay attention to this consciousness during learning and memory. So you have to be in this space. You have to be in this moment, in this activity. You don't have to be worrying about any, anything else because you are not going to understand what I'm saying or you are going to uh, be distracted or probably you will have a span of attention of three seconds, which is what mostly YouTube measures three seconds that's really ridiculous for a human being in accordance with its persistence memory was first separated into three sequential major systems the sensory so all of your senses short-term and long-term memory systems Sensory memory allows for the recording of sensations and their storage in cortical structures. Short-term memory was initially proposed as a precursor to long-term memory. However, it was later noted that not all information stored in short-term memory passes into the long-term stage or into the long-term memory. In fact, one kind of short-term memory refers to information used exclusively for executing or developing other complex cognitive processes. So your brain is so, is so smart and our bodies are so perfectly designed so that we don't really use all of our space. We don't need to store many things in our in our brain or in our memory. So certain things that we are just going to use right now are in the short-term space. And then they are going to be liberated and you will have more space to store information of the next activities that you are going to do. Once you execute the actions, once you release 
the need of those things, then you have more free space. Isn't that amazing? Long-term memory has been divided by a researchers, a researcher uh, named Tulvin based on whether the material is stored in the episodic memory or semantic memory. We are introducing a new concept. Episodic memory is defined as the recollections of previous experiences from one's personal past, especially if focus on events that constitute our autobiographic memory. Semantic memory refers to general knowledge of facts and concepts regarding the world. So your episodic memory is more about your biography, your past, your experiences, personal experiences. Your semantic memory is more about the facts, the knowledge, and the concepts of the world and that you are learning usually in the school. This knowledge is not located in a specific time or place. So it depends as how you use it. Based on the contents of their operating characteristics, the kinds of information they process and the purpose they serve, all memory systems have been classified as declarative and non-declarative. What is this? Declarative memory refers to memories that can be consciously recalled, such as facts and events. It is divided into episodic and semantic memory. In contrast, non-declarative memory does not afford awareness of any memory content, but does require consciousness and it includes procedural memory, priming, simple classical conditioning, and non-associative learning. So this kind of memory, this non-declarative memory is more complex because it requires more things. It requires procedures. It requires priming, which is like activating your memory. It requires a conditioning, so a repetitive action. And it is a non-associative learning. So it is more complex in terms of it is difficult when we don't associate something so that we can remember it. Nowadays, cognitive neuroscience, a growing area in neuroscience, combines the experimental strategies of cognitive psychology with various neuroimaging techniques to examine how brain functions and how it supports mental activities. The neuroimaging techniques used include, include positron emission tomography or PET and magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. These neuroimaging methods provide a means of measuring local changes in brain activity. So one is very specific, one is very um, point-directed, let's say, and the other one measures a region that is going to be lightened. PET uses radio-level label tracers to visualize blood flow changes related to neural activity. MRI can measure brain activity indirectly by taking advantage of a fortuitous physiologic property which is that when a region of the brain increases activities, both blood flow and the oxygen content of the blood in that region increase. Yes, you heard correctly. You need oxygen for your memory to work. You need oxygen for your brain as food and also glucose. And if you don't have a proper oxygenation process, your memory is going to be affected. 
Are you paying attention to what I'm saying? Because oxygenation has been um, impaired many times throughout these two years, whether you wanted to believe it or not. It's just a, a matter of time so that you can notice the effects in your brain. Using the face mask is impairing your memory systems also because you are not properly oxygenating your brain. Anatomical basis of the memory systems. Now we are going to go to the anatomy of your brain. In the last few decades, memory has come to be seen as networks of interconnected cortical neurons formed by associations that contain our experiences in their connectional structures Likewise, we now believe that memory networks overlap and interact profusely with one another such that a cellular assembly can be engaged in many memory networks. These networks are integrated by a specific anatomical structures such as the hippocampus, the cerebellum, the amygdala, frontal lobes, temporal lobes, Entorrhinal cortex and basal ganglia. Don't worry about all these technical names. I'm going to try to give you a diagram by the end of the episode so that you can see the different classification and the different anatomical structures and understand that, which is the most important point, that not only one region is involved in your memory um, processes. The left prefrontal cortex is relatively highly involved in encoding the information, whereas the right prefrontal cortex is more involved in the episodic memory retrieval. So look at this paragraph. The left, the left, well, this is my left, is relatively highly involved in encoding information. It's more analytical, the left, remember. Whereas the right prefrontal cortex is more involved in retrieval. So this episodic memory retrieval is more in the right side, which makes sense because your right side is more about connection. It's more about your emotions. It's more, it's more about your intuitive abilities, paying more attention to what is happening inside of you, episodic memory, autobiographic memory, prefrontal cortex is more in analytical encoding of data, brain structures associated with semantic memory. What are these brain structures? Semantic memory involves the semantic definition of objects. It uses shape, color, size, function, and motion information. A consensus has not yet been achieved regarding where this information is represented in the brain because it's too complex to understand how all of this shape, color, size, function, and motion is being um a store is being encoded it is really complex now but probably in, in the future years we will get the information some authors have proposed that this information is stored in perceptual and motor systems and was active when we first learned about an object in support of this argument the occipital cortex is the beginning of semantic processing, which constitute in the left temporal lobe. The left inferior frontal cortex is relevant to word selection and retrieval. The fusiform gyrus located at the ventral surface of the temporal lobes, temporal means this part, is highly active during naming and reading words. So pay attention to this because when we are children, we want to know 
what is the name of things. And we are learning new words as the day approaches, as the hour approaches. In one day, when you are children, you learn probably more than 10 words many times, depending on how curious you are. But this system of semantic memory is extremely important to give you all this knowledge of the words and associating with the shape of the things, with the function of the things, and with how they work. That's why the more you explain to children how all of these things in the world work, because they don't know, the easier they are going to remember the function and remember what they have to do to make them work. And they are very good now. This new generation of children are very good to pick up this kind of semantic memory if you have time to explain them the functions, not reading the instructions or things like that, just being practical and trying to explain as much as possible what the object or what the device is designed to do and what kind of buttons you have to press, all of those technical things. Because episodic memory deals with where information was acquired, this subtype of declarative memory depends on the integrity of the medial temporal lobe. The hippocampus has a critical role in episodic memory because it contains place cells, head direction cells, and grid cells, which are involved in the representation and recollection of spatial locations. Your hippocampus is very important in terms of your spatial memory. And there is a very famous study that probably you have already listened of cab drivers in England where they prove that they their hippocampus is significantly bigger than the regular person because these cab drivers have to learn a lot of information in terms of spatial locations. The hippocampus is surrounded and connected with the entorrhinal, parahippocampal, and perineal cortices, and also with several subcortical and cortical structures. So now you have learned the anatomy, the systems, the classification of memory. So now you really appreciate all of the things that your brain is doing while learning something. So the more you can help your brain to do that, the easier your activities will be, and the easier also your retrieval of information is going to be. So what can you do to improve all of these regions? Sleeping well is extremely important for your memory. Exercising, because it helps with oxygenation, because it helps to release a lot of neurotransmitters and chemical substances that are going to improve and enhance your memory. and of course, your foods, your eating behaviors. The more you eat sugary treats, processed foods, all of those things that we already know and have repeatedly said in different episodes, the more you are damaging your memory also. And one thing that I want to point out is the artificial sweeteners. They are really, really toxic in terms of your memory also because they make you, they are designed to um, bias your sensors in terms of what is happening in the demands of glucose. But you are just trying to cheat on your brain, which is not going to buy the things. And you are indirectly activating a loop of drawing the glucose and faking an hypoglycemic shock that is making you more anxious 
and consuming more food and more toxic food, not just the healthy food. You are more prone to consume the toxic food. So pay attention to this because it damages a lot your brain. Purpose of a study. I'm going to talk to you about a very, very important study that they perform in terms of how our emotions and how certain neural techniques to relax, to allow peace in your in your day can help you to release some very um, traumatic experiences. So what was the purpose of this study? The purpose of the study was to characterize the neurophysiological and clinical effects that may result from the neuroemotional technique or NET in patients with traumatic stress symptoms associated with cancer-related event. The people that performed the study hypothesized that self-regulatory processing of traumatic memories would be observable as physiological changes in key brain areas after undergoing the net intervention and that these changes could be associated with improvement of traumatic stress symptoms. So we'll see what happens. What were the experimental design of this study? They enrolled 23 participants with a prior cancer diagnosis who expressed a distressing cancer-related memory that was associated with traumatic stress symptoms of at least six months in duration. Participants were randomized to either the net intervention or a wait list control condition to evaluate the primary outcome of neurophysiological effects. All participants received functional magnetic resonant imaging. That's how they measure the activity in the brain. During the auditory presentation of both a neutral stimulus and a description of the specific traumatic event. So that's what happened. They narrated the neutral stimulus and they gave a description of the specific traumatic event and at the same time, they were measuring the activity of the brain through the functional MRI or the mag magnetic resonant imaging. So what happened? Pre and post comparisons were performed between the traumatic and the neutral condition within and between groups. Psychological measures included the impact of event scale a state trait lack of quality anxiety index, brief symptom inventory, and post-traumatic cognitions inventory. All of those scales were used. So what, what were the results? The initial fMRI scans in both groups show significant increases in the bilateral parahippocampus and brain stem after net therapy, reactivity in the parahippocampus, brainstem, anterior cingulate, and insula was significantly decreased during the traumatic stimulus. Likewise, participants receiving the net intervention had significant reductions compared to the control group distress as measured by the scales of global severity index the scale of anxiety and traumatic stress, stress sorry, as measured by the scales of this uh, episodic stress and post-traumatic cognition inventory. So what were the conclusions? The study had an initial step towards understanding the mechanistic features of this kind of net intervention, which now can be applied in many, um, in many hospitals, in many clinics, 
where they perform this kind of emotional technique. Specifically, brain regions involved with traumatic memories and distress, such as the brainstem, insula, anterior, cingulate gyrus, and parahypocampus, had significantly reduced activity after the net intervention and were associated with clinical improvement of symptoms associated with distressing recollections. So this is very important, and I wanted to share this study because now we are linking the emotions, the treating with therapy of episodic traumatic experiences to allow our brains and to allow all of those memories to dissolve. They are not going to go away. You are just going to detach the value of the emotion that is stored in that memory. It's like removing the painful part of the memory and allowing the uh, recovery of your emotions. So that's why it's extremely important that you um, listen to this study. Now, as the season four has just begun and we are changing the way I am teaching and helping you with this podcast, I am going to share the uh, classification of your uh, of the memory and the anatomy so that you can understand what is going to happen okay so let's begin what is happening here this is the functional classification of memory systems modified from these two authors and the reference from the article that I mentioned at the beginning is here. What the memory is going to be divided as we already said in short-term memory and working memory. So remember that this working memory is only used while you are executing the functions, but you are releasing the space of this memory once you complete the action. That doesn't mean that you will have to learn again and again. Depends on the repetition that is going to be stored in a more um, suit suitable place. Now, this is the other extension, the long-term memory or the other um, classification of the memory. Now we have two sub-branches of this long-term memory. The declarative memory which is based on facts and is autobiographic from your life and is stored in the medial temporal lobe. The declarative memory of events, knowledge of the world or semantic memory is stored in the medial temporal lobe as well. Now, the non-declarative memory, the more complex, as you can see here, has a lot of um, sub-sub-branches and a lot of um, different stages or procedures that have to be complied with. We have the non-declarative procedural memory, skills and habits. Pay attention to these skills and habits. Those need repetition. It is stored in the basal ganglia, or also named as putamen. Priming is stored in your neurocortex. Priming, remember that I told you that is sort of an activation of this memory, and it is in your neocortex. Simple conditioning has two emotional responses and skeletal musculature. And it is stored in your amygdala and in your cerebellum. Conditioning, simple conditioning. Pay attention to this because many times we are being conditioned by the things we see, we watch, and we listen without 
thinking if they are going to help us and look at these emotional responses and your amygdala that is also involved in the threat and stress responses is implied in the in this non-declarative memory. Non-associative learning is a reflex pathway. So it is just a reflex in terms of also the repetition of the things, the reflex in these terms of the non-declarative memory, we can make it much better by the repetition of the things. Now, what is happening in terms of your classification of the memory systems based on the anatomy? We have the neocortex, which is the region of the brain that evolved with time and that is mostly the, also it involves or it has the prefrontal cortex and all of these regions that I'm mentioning here. And it is the region that is going to allow you to have more uh, thinking skills in terms of analyzing and resolving the problems. So in the frontal part of the neocortex, what is happening? Working memory, episodic memory, semantic memory, and procedural, procedural memory. In the temporal part of your neocortex, more here, um, you have episodic memory, semantic memory, parietal memory, parietal neocortex, sorry, is your semantic memory, an occipital uh, part of the neocortex, which I cannot point it in this, in my physical uh, parts, but parietal means also close to the sides, a little bit behind, and is their semantic memory. Occipital neocortex is the part they the part behind in the structure. It's priming and semantic memory. So now what happens with the subcortical structures? You have the amygdala, which is going to be uh, in charge of your emotional memory and your episodic memory. Pay attention to this because your emotions and your episodes are linked. That's why it also it's very recommended that, that you associate an emotion with the things that you are doing in terms of learning more what is happening in your life. If you associate more certain kind of emotions to a topic that you really want to master, it's going to be much easier. Hippocampus, episodic memory. Cerebellum, procedural memory. Entorrhinal cortex, episodic memory and semantic memory. And basal ganglia, or putamen, is procedural memory. So this is the full picture of how we have a lot of structures, a lot of regions, the neocortex, the new part of our evolution involved in the learning experience and in storing many of many, many of types of memory, working memory, episodic memory, semantic and procedural memory. So we are using all of these neocortex a lot in terms of your memory processes. So take care of your memory with the activities that I just mentioned previously. And I hope that this episode has really enlightened you and opened a new, um, a new paradigm and a new way of appreciating your brain and appreciating the learning process that you are able to do at any moment. Remember, just to summarize quickly, what is going to help your memory? Repetition, um, exercise, sleep, and your uh, eating behaviors. 
remember, not processed food, not the sugary treats, and also not the abuse of screens, mostly at night, because those are going to disrupt your sleep. And as a consequence, you are not going to have a very good memory the next day. So what else can you do for your memory? Um, make a summary of the things, make a diagram, just as the ones that we uh, saw here, uh, con conceptual maps, and drawing, aligning some emotion, using music to learn, for me, is working or works, and discovering what kind of music, because sometimes when you listen to the music, you remember many things. It, that, that is the power of the association. So just start learning more about what can you do to improve your, um, your memory and your learning process. Thank you for paying attention. If you like the episode, if it resonates with you, if you think I'm helping uh, people to understand what is happening in the brain, help me to share this information in your platforms and with your friends and with your family. And also leave comments, give me a like, whatever you can do to interact with this video, with this podcast, I am going to really appreciate. And if if you are in the mood and you are resonating with the content, please give me a review in the Spotify or Apple or YouTube of the podcast. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Bye. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode and integrating with this community to cultivate more awareness and consciousness in your inner health to create a new generation of humans. If you want more tools to grow your inner health with science and spirituality merch, visit www.davidortegab.com. Remember that you can subscribe to become a premium member and receive plenty of benefits in all five areas of your life. Nutrition, metabolism, emotional resilience, consciousness and abundance, 